Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of Distress Situations by Reed Smith, our continuing series of podcasts on restructuring and insolvency issues. 363 sale. It refers to the sale of an organization's assets under Section 363 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Those sale provisions were designed to maximize the debtor's ability to uh, realize the full value of assets, which enables debtors to use the proceeds to satisfy the claims of creditors. At least that was the intended purpose of Section 363, but restructuring professionals have found the statute to be a valuable tool that can be applied in different situations. Like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon, 363 can save distressed businesses or eliminate problems or pay off secured debt. So today, we will look at the 363 sale process and its possible uses from this perspective of both legal and financial advisors. And to give us the perspective of a financial advisor, I'm joined for today's session by Mark Pagani of Getzler Henrik. Mark is a restructuring professional who's been involved in many 363 sales. In fact, Mark and I first met almost 20 years ago on an interesting 363 sale that I'm sure he'll want to talk about. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. So just for our listeners, why don't you just give us a little uh, elevator speech about your background and particularly with respect to 363 sales? Sure. I, uh, I didn't get into the stressed and distressed world off the bat. I started out as a, as a hotel manager in the hospitality industry and uh, did some other things in the food industry. I ended up working with an apparel manufacturer at one point whose family I knew, um, and they asked me to help fix some of the operations with them, which are dysfunctional. So I helped them do that over a few years, and then they sold the business, and I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And I said, gee, well, maybe I'm a, I'm a turnaround, uh, turnaround person. So I started out working with stress and distress companies in 1999, and I've been on sort of all sides of the coin. I've been an advisor to creditors committees, an advisor to lenders, and then, uh, but primarily an advisor to stressed and distressed middle market uh, companies, you know, throughout the U.S. And I've been involved in 363 sales early on, and both as a chief restructuring officer, so with a fiduciary responsibility to oversee a process. I've also been involved as a financial advisor. So not a fiduciary, but advising advising the company and, and working with investment bankers. And then also helping sell uh, assets myself, which I'll talk about a, a story where that came up uh, suddenly. I had no idea I was going to be selling assets, but lo and behold, there I was selling them. So it's been an interesting ride over the last you know 22 years or so. Well, like most areas of bankruptcy, the sale process has its own lingo which can be off-putting to those who are coming to the bankruptcy sale process for the first time. Just the number 363 
can leave the newcomer scratching her head. Then we have phrases such as bid protection, stalking horse, free and clear, cleanse the assets, bid procedures, bid protections, all of which have implications for the process. So we'll try to explain these as we come upon them today. So the purchases of the assets benefit from an opportunity to acquire valuable assets free and clear of liens, claims, and other encumbrances, often at uh, discount prices. The bankruptcy court grants the debtor in possession or trustee the power to sell the organization's assets, even if there's an objection from creditors after there's a a court process and a hearing. And that is basically what a 363 sale is. But Mark, as you and I know, that's much more than that. So tell me from the perspective of a financial advisor, if you're representing a distressed company, how do you prepare for a 363 sale? Well, you know, you want to get uh, all of your ducks in a row first. Uh, You want to make sure you have uh, due diligence information ready for to disseminate to potential buyers. And that includes financial projections. Those are extremely, extremely important in helping buyers understand what the future's like, what the value may be, how much money they may need to put into the company in addition to the purchase price. And, you know, there's legal documents, uh, there's all kinds of information that all needs to be assembled. And that helps the like I said, the buyer, as well as the investment banker, uh, able to you know do their job and uh, go out with the right information and market the assets. So that that's a critical component, and I think also it's it's making sure that the management team you know is calm and is uh, steering the ship, running the business to maintain value. Sometimes people can get jittery um, when a business is being prepared for sale. And, you know, our job is to kind of keep keep things calm and make sure that uh, the process can go forward and value can be achieved. Now, from your description, it sounds pretty much like any process to sell an operating business. The difference is that in a 363, you first file a petition under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. You have a judge appointed, and very often the sale process starts immediately upon the filing of the petition. There may be some other first day issues like financing of the case and so on, but generally the sale process gets started on day one. So you come into the case as an advisor, a CRO. What is your role in the process as a CRO? Well, you know, we're, we're basically overseeing the process. And we're trying to make sure that we're able to make sure that the process is successful, it maximizes value, that the council and investment banker have the information that they need, that things are stable and it, it moves forward. We also have to make sure that there's enough financing or cash available to make sure that the process can be successful. You know, if we need to testify, we'll do that as well as the investment banker may testify on value in the process, but we can testify also on things like projections and and the like. So that's really our goal is to make sure that everybody's doing their job, that if there's objections to the process or glitches, that they get resolved. You know, So we're working closely with counsel to make sure that um, any objections can be addressed, that they can be overcome, and that the process can go forward and, and value achieved. 
Now, from the perspective of distressed businesses, one of the great advantages of a 363 sale is the ability to sell free and clear of liens and encumbrances to leave behind tail liabilities. It's maximizing the leverage of of an asset sale. And one of the ways in which the bankruptcy process ensures that you're maximizing value is to require that any sale be exposed to higher and better offers, be it in an auction process or outside of an auction process. Right now, there is a lot of talk about distressed assets, particularly in light of what's happened with COVID. As you said earlier, these are interesting times, Mark. So what are you seeing right now in the marketplace in terms of asset sales going on, or where do you think we are in the restructuring process? It's a great question. I mean, it's a really interesting time right now. You know, one of the things that's been particularly difficult is understanding value. And there's two, two reasons for that. One is that you, there's so much uncertainty going forward, and part of uh, value is, is preparing projections so you can you know, provide that information to a buyer. Buyer can make a determination for what they want to pay. But projections are so difficult because of the uncertainty. Uh, you know, just think right now, we're, we're going through some reopening bumps and it's difficult to hire people. It's difficult to get product. You know, prices are up. How long does that go for? Does it end, you know, at the end of the year? Does it end in the fourth quarter? Those kinds of things. Back in COVID, uh, we, were, we were worried about uh, when does reopening happen? How long are we going to stay in sort of shutdown mode if you were a hotel um, or sort of, you know, low power mode, you know, with, with depressed um, sales and no, no one really knew anyone's guess. And, you know, I, I think everybody was wrong. You know, no one had the right answer. So, so that's something that's, that's uh, you know, a real issue is, is the uncertainty. But there is, you know, on the good side, there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of people who want to buy assets and particularly financial buyers, but also strategic buyers. And because there's so much money, there's real competition for, for healthy companies and valuations are really high. So the buyers with all this money, they're looking for value. And it's a great time to sell a business in a 363 sale and bankruptcy because there is so much money. Buyers are hungry for value. You can get a a pretty reasonable price at this time. So, so that's another aspect of it is, is the, the, you know, buyers looking for value, not finding it in the ordinary market and looking to distress companies, but there haven't been that many that have been sold. There haven't been many filings. Um, and that's because uh, of, uh, you know, the amount of liquidity going back to liquidity again, going, you know, there's the PPP money. There's uh, other kinds of stimulus monies. There's the pent-up demand from the consumer. So there's a lot of money floating around out there that's uh, kept companies from actually filing to begin with. And again, there's a, there's a shortage of assets out there uh, for buyers today. You know, that reminds me when I started out in this business a couple of centuries ago, one of my clients always used to remind me that cash is king. And if you've got cash, you are the king, he would say. So how do you start a 363 sale process? You start pre-petition, post-petition, 
and what are the things that you try to do to kickstart the process? Well, I, I think, you know, if you had your druthers, you'd like to market the assets pre-petition. Um, you like to get all your materials together and go to market. And, and the reason for that is uh, because bankruptcy is so expensive and there are, you know, potential issues that can pop up that can delay things. You, you want to make sure that you have a buyer lined up prior to filing, if, if, if you can. And, and, and that requires marketing beforehand. You can have a successful sale, uh, successful 363 sale, marketing the assets post-petition. But the problem is, is that your, 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 your time, your, your available dollars may be shorter. And you, the value you may achieve because you have a, a, maybe a limited, more limited time frame may be uh, reduced. So that's why you try to, if you can, um, get a, a, a leading buyer, what we call a stalking horse bidder, lined up where you're going to negotiate an asset purchase agreement in advance. You're going to set a price that will serve as a floor price in an auction process so that you basically have a template for any other potential buyers. So you're trying to get the best, you know, best bid that you can in advance. Someone where you have some certainty of closing a deal. And that's really, I think that's really important in bankruptcy because if you, if, if you, if you have a process that ends up busted, then you run out of time, you run out of money and you're, you're set up for a, basically a liquidation, which generally speaking is, is not the best way to maximize value of the assets. So you're, you're, you're going to try and, and do things in advance if you can. So turn this around a little bit. You talked about a stalking horse. If I were to come in as a, the uh, counsel representing a potential bidder, there are certain protections that I would ask for in terms of being a stalking horse because the disadvantage of the stalking horse is uh, somebody else could show up at the last minute and convince the bankruptcy court that they can offer a better deal and you get outbid and you spent all of this time and effort uh, negotiating a contract, doing due diligence, only to find that your frenemy has taken the assets away from you. So what are the types of inducements that you could give a stalking horse to get them to make that investment and sign a contract? Well, you know, cer certainly you can have a, a limited time frame for the sale. So you have someone signed up, um, you've done a process in advance. You don't want there to be, you know, more time is more risk that you're going to find, at least for the, for the stalking horse, you're going to find somebody else. So you can reduce the amount of time. You can provide a breakup fee. You can, you know, provide reimbursement for, for expenses. So on the breakup fee, you know, if someone else buys the, uh, the business, you can, or the assets, you can uh, provide, you know, compensation for not getting the deal, and and that serves as a little bit of a hurdle to uh, a bidder that would want to pay more. So if your breakup fee is a million dollars and your selling price is twenty five million dollars, you know the next highest bid has to be at least twenty six million dollars in order to in in order to be even, uh, let alone to be ahead. So it provides a bit of a hurdle to uh, someone else who might come in. So there's the breakup fees, there's the time frame, there's providing, you know, reimbursement for expenses. Uh, those are some common 
common protections that, that are often um, included in asset purchase agreements and in bidding procedures. And one of the others that uh, if I'm representing a potential bidder, I try to get involved in the uh, design of the bidding procedures to build in as much protection. You mentioned timing. Um, there's also the topping, you know, the minimum bidding requirements, et cetera, that could sort of reduce the field of competition for the assets. But you yet have to convince a bankruptcy judge that the proposed transaction, when it comes before the judge for approval, uh, represents the highest and best achievable value for the assets. You never know what you're going to get. I know you and I, we worked together many, many years ago on high voltage up in Boston. And then earlier this year uh, on Ruby's Costume Company, those are two situations where uh, the 363 sale process was very, very efficient at attracting value. You want to just sort of explain how that all happened? Yeah, they're, they're, you're right. They're, they're very interesting processes. In high-voltage engineering, it was very unusual because the way we got involved was there was a Chapter 11 trustee appointed, which is a little bit unusual even in itself. And we were the financial advisor to the Chapter 11 trustee. And the initial, uh, when we took over, the case had already filed, and the company was on a path to liquidate. And we reviewed all the financials, um, you know, met with everybody, and we determined that if we could keep the business going and sell it in pieces, there were four distinct aspects of the business, that we would maximize value much more so than, than liquidating the business. So we were able to get the financing and prove the case to allow for a, a sale process. So there, there, uh, there hadn't been marketing in advance. This was marketing and bankruptcy, which, which can be a lot more risky. So we retained an investment banker. Um, the investment banker went to market and you know, the creditors committee was talking about value. And they said, you know, look, uh, we were talking about one of the businesses. I was named Robocon was the name. And Robocon's EBITDA, uh, their cash flow in the year prior to that point was about $6 million. And, and by sort of standard metrics at that time, a five times multiple of cash flow of EBITDA, about $30 million might be what one might expect. Uh, and so that was what uh, people were prepared for. But we, what we got was a bid for $180 million from a strategic buyer. And the strategic buyer saw great value in that business. They were in a similar business. They, they saw growth in the market. They saw a tremendous opportunity. And they were willing to pay for it far and above what anyone else was willing to do. By, the, by sort of standard valuation metrics. So, you know, that was early on in my bankruptcy experience and was a real lesson that you, you never really know what you're going to get when you go out there. It could be really great. And we, we had good experiences with the other three businesses and we ended up paying the, um, the dip loan off. We paid all the secured creditors um, we, we ended up paying the unsecured creditors with interest, and there was a significant amount of money for equity, which is probably one of the best experiences I've ever had in my career, probably the best in a 363 sale. 
Now, um, you, you take that, you contrast it a little bit with Ruby's. And with Ruby's, uh, Ruby's was a costume company that was, you know, very big in the Halloween costume business and a very large company, one of the largest, um, in the world coming to, with respect to costumes. And Ruby's was difficult to seasonal business. It was during COVID that the sale process was going on and no one really knew if there was going to be a Halloween and if anyone would want to buy this business. Or if, their costumes. Or, 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 or their costumes, right, or their costumes. And I, I, I recall there was a big issue about um, whether to liquidate the company and even not go through a sale process because uh, if you could you know, liquidate the costumes before Halloween, you'd certainly get a better price. And if you waited until after Halloween, boy, that price would drop dramatically. So no one really knew there was a, a, a strong push to, to go through a liquidation process just because there'd be some certainty that you'd get some value. Although there were even the value in that liquidation was, was subject to a lot of discussion and dispute. So what ended up happening was actually the, the owners of the business identified a potential strategic buyer that was a foreign buyer. And foreign buyers generally aren't familiar with the 363 sale process, which requires speed and agility, right? Because, you know, you're, because you're selling a, a business in bankruptcy, things move quickly. There's not a lot of time to do due diligence uh, and so on and so forth. So a lot of foreign buyers take their time, especially in Asia. It's a different uh, mentality and process and aren't prepared for a fast-moving process. You know, now you can give them a copy of this podcast and tell them, listen and learn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, so the foreign buyer ended up being the stalking horse and set the floor bid and ended up buying the business. It was very successful, paid off the secured creditors in full and uh, paid off the dip, the dip loan, the debtor in possession loan. It was a very successful transaction. And you just, there was so much uncertainty around it because it was COVID and the nature of the business, but it ended up being successful. I mean, those are two stories where you had a lot of uncertainty, but they were successful. There's a lot of stories you could tell where there's uncertainty, they were unsuccessful, but those are good ones that we can talk about. Well, we'll stick to the good ones today. You know, a 363 sale is not the only avenue for disposing of assets in bankruptcy. I think the framers of the bankruptcy code anticipated that it would be done frequently through a confirmed plan of reorganization, but more and more that does not happen. And in fact, many of the 363 sales, we find cases get dismissed after the sale is consummated. So what would be the considerations you would look at to decide gee, do we do a, a private sale? Do we do a 363 sale? Do we try and do this through uh, confirming a plan? Well, you know, it's a great question. The good thing is that there's a lot of options. You know, there's these three options. 363 sale is a pretty quick process. You could get one done in 90 days. Again, it depends on whether you've marketed the assets before. Uh, and assuming that you have the sale process and bankruptcy can be pretty, pretty truncated. It's also, because it's a public process and it's an auction, then there aren't usually a lot of questions about the value that's achieved. There, there's litigation, as, as, as Mike's been involved with uh, many times, over you know, some of the aspects of the bid procedures and where it was, billing, uh, was, was bidding. 
chilled and things like that. But 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 it's there's a lot of certainty around that from getting the the sale approved and having the process go quickly. In in a private sale, private sale is basically kind of skipping the the, the auction process. You have a buyer lined up, and you just want to sell the business to that buyer. And there's potential issues with respect to doing a private sale because you're not going necessarily going through that public process. However, if you've been through a sale process prior to bankruptcy and you've got great data on who, who you've gone to and what the bids are, if you've really only been able to come to terms with one buyer and you know the buyer's really pushing for, for certainty on their end in getting this, you know, the sale done to them without any competition, um, under the right circumstances, it's a, it's a great option. It usually happens in very difficult sale processes where there aren't a lot of options. And I, I think it's very um, specific to a situation. It's not something that's done on a mass scale. I'm considering it now in a situation I'm in. It's a business in the healthcare industry. It's a very difficult business to sell. The owner's been trying to sell it for a long period of time. And if we get this buyer that we're talking to to sign up, we just want to get the deal done. And there's not a lot of cash to go through a process. Let's let's sell it to this to this one buyer and not be subject to uh, additional marketing because the business itself may collapse and then value is destroyed. So it's better to sell to somebody in a private sale and have some value go to the estate than have none. So that you know that's the sort of the context of a private sale. And in in a plan sale, uh, plan sale, uh, a lot of times a plan sale is conducted where you need more. Of sort of a the, the sale requires more of a restructuring of the business. There need to there's going to be liabilities that are going to be taken on, but not at their full value. There needs to be some negotiation. You need to go through a plan process in order to get the business to be sort of formed and sculpted how you want it to be upon emergence. You know, maybe you want some of the baggage, the liabilities that other you know other buyers might want to shed, and and that might you know having the business in a certain structure would maximize value. The problem with, with doing a planned sale is that you, know, you, you do have to go through the process of getting uh, a disclosure statement together and approved. The same with a plan of reorganization, putting creditors into uh, buckets, um, into classes, and having uh, those creditors vote. And that process can take, take, can take time. And so for a situation where a planned sale is the preferred method you really want to line up that process prior to filing for bankruptcy. Do a, a prearranged bankruptcy where you have the plan and disclosure statement written now, prior to the bankruptcy. You're trying to get uh, those approved very early in the bankruptcy process and then just have the vote. Or even a prepackaged bankruptcy where you have all those documents prepared in advance, you have the voting done by class. And really, all you're looking for is is the blessing uh, of the judge uh, to move that forward. So that is a, 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 even a more unusual uh, situation than a private sale. But in the right circumstances where you need a certain structure of the business in order for a sale process to occur, um, it could work out very well. You know, um, since you're such a newcomer, only 20 years of experience in this business, Back in the 80s, right after the bankruptcy code was implemented, it was thought impossible to sell a business without confirming a plan. And we can thank the Second Circuit for its decision in Lionel for giving us the opportunity to utilize this 
uh, feature of the bankruptcy code. It has a lot of advantages, particularly in the ability to leave behind liabilities, so-called strip the assets and maximize the upside. So uh, there's a lot more we could discuss, but I think we're about out of time for today. Anybody who's interested in hearing more, reach out to Mark, reach out to me, and we'd be happy to uh, chat with you some more about what 363 of the bankruptcy code is like and what the sale process can or cannot accomplish. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today on Distress Situations and look forward to the opportunity working together in the future. Thank you so so much, Mike. Uh, I appreciate it and thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for the latest edition of Distress Situations by Reed Smith. Distress Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved. 